The Festival of Lights. What could that possibly mean for folks like you and me? Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares offers an enlightening perspective on the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. wish you could get a cup of coffee with your pastor and have some one-on-one conversation? Well, grab your mug and join us in the pastor's study. Today on Focal Point, we're pressing pause on our regular programming with Pastor Mike to ask him some questions from listeners. Now, if you have a question of your own, I'll share our contact information shortly. But right now, let's join Focal Point's Executive Director, Jay Wharton, for a look at Hanukkah. It's a special holiday edition of Ask Pastor Mike. Jay? Thank you, Dave. I'm here with Pastor Mike, and Pastor Mike, next week marks the beginning of Hanukkah, and a listener asks us, what is Hanukkah, and should I be celebrating it? Well, yeah, there's no need to celebrate it, although the interesting thing is that in the Bible we find in John chapter 10 that Jesus was there at the Feast of Dedication, which, by the way, is what the word Hanukkah in Hebrew means. It means the dedication. The festival or the Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah there in John chapter 10, verse 22. So Jesus was there, certainly part of the Jewish culture, celebrating Hanukkah, and he makes a theological point about himself at that celebration. Well, where does the menorah and the dreidel and the lighting of the lamp, and where does all that come from? Well, the historical background for Hanukkah and the reason they were celebrating it in the first century is because in the second century before Christ, there was a huge victory that the Jewish people had accomplished, and they were celebrating that, uh, which was the taking back of the Temple Mount from the evil Seleucid king Antiochus. Antiochus was the product of a split kingdom after Alexander the Great ruling up in the north. He wanted to go and attack the uh, Ptolemaic kingdom down in Egypt. Uh, Rome intervenes, and he's upset and frustrated coming back from Egypt. He decides to attack Israel, and he makes all the Israelites in the middle of the second century BC pledge their allegiance to Zeus, their god. And he goes into the temple, and he desecrates the temple, and he sacrifices a pig there, and he tells all the Jews to sacrifice pigs. Well, there was a priest named uh, Mattathias, and he had five sons, and they chose to resist him, and uh, it started a year-long kind of uh, war of a revolt, and uh, ends up that Mattathias dies, and his son Judas, Judas Maccabeus, we call him, he picks up the mantle, and he was quite a leader who went and fought to take back the Temple Mount, and in the winter month of Kislev on the Jewish calendar on the 25th, 165 BC, he succeeds and everyone is excited and they celebrate and they light the torches on the Temple Mount so that they can reconstruct things on the temple. They relight the candelabras that are there in the temple and it just becomes a huge celebration. Now all the stories that you may have heard about Hanukkah, about the cruise of oil that lasts and all that, that wasn't a part of this. Matter of fact, that didn't even show up in the story until about 600 years later in the Talmud. Josephus gives us a clearer insight into it in the first centuries. He writes about it and simply says it's a celebration of the taking back of the temple, and they called it the Festival of Lights. 
because they were lighting torches and celebrating this kind of new light metaphorically of getting the temple back and being able to celebrate all the customs of Judaism again after this terrible time of occupation by Antiochus uh, Epiphanes. So this wasn't a regular feast time from back in the Old Old Testament days. This is something that came about in the first or second century BC. Yes, there's no mention of the Feast of Dedication in the Old Testament because it hadn't happened yet. Old Testament ends, right, but about 400 BC, and then this takes place in 165 BC. So by the time of Christ, uh, Christ is there while the culture is celebrating this great victory, much like, you know, some culture may celebrate some Independence Day or something. And so he's there, and, and then he makes the point that he ultimately is the light of the world. And, um, you know, it becomes a, a great platform for him, like any of the things he does. I mean, you saw when he fed 5,000 people, he turned around and said he was the bread of life. During that period of time, in the middle of the Gospel of John, uh, he calls himself the, the light of the world. And one of the interesting things is that's coming in that time period where he's there celebrating the Feast of Dedication, which was also known, as Josephus said, the Feast of Lights, the Festival of Lights. And the gift-giving that goes on on the consecutive days during this time period, is that part of that particular tradition, or did that come out later? Came and what do those represent? Yeah, came about later, along with some of the kind of the mythical things that are discussed about Hanukkah. Those are all late editions, centuries after the fact, and certainly it's still celebrated in uh, Jewish circles with a lot of just traditions that have grown up around this celebration. But it's uh, just a reminder to them of God's providential help, support, His intervention in, in bringing back Jewish rule to the Temple Mount in the second century before Christ. I've heard some Christians take on that gift-giving method of doing it on consecutive days during that Hanukkah period. Is that something we should be doing or not? I mean, no. I mean, it's not that, that it would be wrong for you to do that any more than taking the month of February to celebrate, you know, the substitutionary atonement. I mean, people can do what they want as long as they're celebrating Christ, but there's no biblical emphasis on this. There's no directions from Scripture. There's no instructions about that. And people do a lot of things to exalt Christ at different times, and they kind of piggyback on different historical things, and there'd be nothing wrong with that, but certainly no one should feel obligated to. No Christian should feel obligated to. So would you recommend as Christians that we take part in the Hanukkah celebration? No. I mean, and I think one of the trends of modern Christianity is a lot of interest in the Jewish feasts and festivals of the Old Testament. There's nothing wrong with learning about those, but the whole point in the New Testament is that Christ has come as the fulfillment of all those shadows. All the ceremonies were shadows, the substance and reality is in Christ. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with, with celebrating the greatness of Christ and the gift of Christ and giving of gifts and all that is great, but the idea of New Testament Christianity is not for us to go back and continue to engage in all of the ceremonies of the Old Testament. And, and this one in particular is not even an Old Testament instruction for us to engage in. So I don't do it as a family. I wouldn't encourage my family to do it. I certainly don't encourage our church family to do it. Uh, but if someone's doing something in honor of Christ uh, on Memorial Day, okay, I'm not going to say that's a terrible thing. But I don't want us to go back to the ceremonies of the Old Testament, or in this case, the intertestamental period. That's just not what we are. We're Christians, and we celebrate the substance of Christ, the reality of Christ, and uh, we don't have to engage in those forms. And I know that's controversial for some listening, because they love to look at the, you know, the Passover Seder and see the Christological elements, and I get all that, just like there's Christological elements in the temple or the tabernacle, but I'm not going to construct a temple or a tabernacle for our church 
to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, nor am I going to say, well, let's do a Passover Seder as a genuine expression of biblical obedience, because it was prescribed, but it was prescribed for Israel, and now it's been fulfilled in Christ, and so we don't celebrate that anymore. We celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we celebrate baptism as the ordinances of the church, but not the engagement in Old Testament festivals. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. I'm sure that was a very informative discussion for our listeners, and we're going to hear more on this topic from a message you did called Happy Hanukkah, the day Jesus lit up the Temple Mount. Alexander was born in 356 BC. Alexander was the guy who liked to call himself, and other people like to call him, Alexander the Great. Now, when you meet someone who calls himself the Great, you've met someone interesting. He lived up to his name. He was great. By the time he was 30 years old, he had pretty much conquered half of the known world. The guy was a brilliant military strategist. He he had a resolute heart. He was a great thinker, and he was determined to, to conquer the world. Now, he was Greek. He wanted to Hellenize the world and have Greek culture prevail everywhere around the globe. And he got at his task, and he was doing just an awfully good job at it until he was 33 years old, and he went to a party. He fell sick, and he died and have modern medical treatment. And at age 33, he was dead. He had no children, so there was no one to kind of hand the scepter to. And at 33, his general stood around and said, what are we going to do? So they had a little meeting and they decided, here's what we'll do. We'll take the the four top generals in Alexander the Great's army and we'll just divide up the world that we've conquered so far. And so it was that two of them kind of turned into nothing and two of them turned into something. And we began two rival dominating dynasties that made a difference from this point on in, in history. One was the Ptolemaic dynasty with the P in the front. Remember that from eighth grade history? They all migrated to the south, set up their headquarters here in northern Africa in in Egypt, and they ruled from there. Up in the north, you, you had the Seleucid dynasty, and they were up here in Syria. Well, about 150 years after Alexander the Great died, there arose a man in this Seleucid kingdom. They were also called the Syrians, and he became a dominant force to be reckoned with. His name was Antiochus IV. And Antiochus said, you know what? I can revive our great-great-great-great-granddad's vision to see the world Hellenized, and I need to regain control, the kind of control that Alexander the Great had. So he goes after it. But if you know your history, way across the Mediterranean, there was another emerging world power. Who were they? The Romans, man. And you know what? They were becoming the force to be reckoned with. And they send their ships across the Mediterranean. They land on the shores with official papers from Rome. And they say, Antiochus, uh, 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 you better not. You got to cease and desist this right now. Now, I said Antiochus is a smart guy. Rome's too powerful. Rome's got too many people, too much money, too much stuff. So Antiochus, he stops. So he goes home with his tail between his legs because he's been fronted by the Roman uh, emissaries. and, And he's frustrated. Now, again... I'm going home to Syria. I've been down here on the, on the front of the battle line of Egypt. I'm about to come. Who do I have to pass by to get home? Israel. So you know what I'll do? I got all my war machines polished and oiled. Let's just take this little country, Israel, out of the picture. We'll make them part of the Grecian Empire. I can't get Egypt. I can't get the Ptolemies. I'll get Israel. So he goes after Israel. And you know what? There's no way in the world Israel's going to stand up to Antiochus. Antiochus IV has got too much intelligence, too much stuff, too many army men. There's no way. So they roll over for the most part. And Antiochus says, this is great. If we're going to be Grecian, all that Jewish stuff got to go away. As a matter of fact, if you would go with me and you would become Grecian, if you would get Hellenized, then you know what? I'll take care of you. I'll grant you favors. I'll build you civic centers. He built a a huge gymnasium in downtown Jerusalem. I will take care of you. And so he did for those that were willing to compromise. 
By the way, if that sounds familiar, like the vestiges of that end up in the New Testament, you're right. When you read passages like Acts chapter 6, verse 1, there was a dispute in the early church between two sets of Jewish people, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. Do you remember that? That all came from this period of time when this big Hellenization campaign from Antiochus swept through Jerusalem. And village after village and place after place, they compromised, they rolled over, they said, fine, we'll become Grecian. That's okay with us. Are you sure? Because if no more worship of this Yahweh God, you got to now worship our God. And our God is Zeus, the great God of the, of the Greeks. He marches into Jerusalem. He marches up to the Temple Mount. And then they say, we're going to desecrate this place so you never see it as a holy site ever again. They burn all the scrolls. They take all the stuff that they can take and desecrate it, including the altar. And they took the most unclean animal that the Jews could think of, and that was a swine or a pig. And they put it on the altar, the sacred altar of God, and they sacrificed pigs on the altar. And they said, here, no more worship of Yahweh, no more lambs, no more bulls, none of that stuff. You know what? This is all desecrated now. And pretty much the country was dilapidated and demoralized. And about 18 miles northwest of Jerusalem, in the suburbs of Jerusalem, if you will, there was an old priest named Mattathias. And Mattathias sat there the day the Syrians showed up in his neighborhood, and they said, we're all going to become Greek now. We're all going to become worshipers of Zeus. Are you ready? And Mattathias, with a furled brow, said, no, I'm not ready, and I'm not interested. By the way, Mattathias had five sons, all healthy, you know, corn-fed boys from northern Jerusalem. They all stood up behind their dad, Mattathias, and they said, we're not doing it. And the pastor's kids got in a brawl that day with the Syrian commanders, and guess what? They killed them all. They said, our town is in trouble, we're in trouble, I'm sure there's a big price on our head, we're going to have to pack it up and leave. So they leave their little town, and they go up into the mountains, and they start a little base camp where they live secretly. And they go up there, and they begin training people to fight against the Syrians. And Mattathias leads this, and he starts seeing great success and rebels and angry people who said, we don't want to become Greek. We want to worship the God, the God of the Bible. They kept rallying around Mattathias and those like him, and they said, we're going to stand up against this. And so they did. And they started to make a dent in this thing, and people started to say, wow, there's a revolt. There's a resurgence. There's, a, there's somebody standing against this. Well, 12 months into it, Mattathias dies. Well, there's five boys to pick up the baton. There was one among them that was wild-eyed and crazy. One pastor's kid that stood out amongst the rest, and they said, if anybody's going to lead a resurgence and a revolt, it's going to be this guy. It was son number three. His name was Judas, and he was so crazy, they called him Maccabeus. Maccabeus means mallet head. <laughs> Judas the hammer. Judas the madman, you are the guy to lead us to victory. And so Judas takes up the baton of his dad, Mattathias, and here he is and he says, we're going to fight and we're going to regain this land and we're going to worship our God. We're not going to sacrifice pigs on altars and we're not going to sacrifice our lives to Zeus. Forget it. We worship Yahweh. And you know what? For the next 24 months, he saw more success than his dad could have ever imagined. Well, they knew if we're going to win this thing and really turn the tide once and for all, we got a city we got to take back and we got to recapture that center of our worship. They had their eyes set on Jerusalem. We got to take that city. Right now, there's posted Syrian guards all around it, but one day we're going to take it. And it's incredible odds. All the Israelis came. They mounted this siege against the walls of Jerusalem. They retook the city. They killed the Syrians. And those that were alive ran running for their lives. And they took back the Temple Mount. And my goodness, there was a tremendous celebration that day. And they began to reassemble this old dilapidated temple that hadn't been used for daily sacrifices now for three years. 
And they started to, with all of their might, around the clock, with great lamps, four big basins, they say, in all of the courts, the court of the women, the court of the men, all over the Temple Mount. They lit the place up. They could work 24 hours a day restoring the worship articles. Well, we needed a table for the showbread. We needed an altar for incense. We need an altar for sacrifice. We got to set up this seven-candled lamp in the lampstand, the menorah, if you will. We got to get all this going. And so they instituted, Judas Maccabeus, his brothers, and all the whole gang of the army said, we're going to now institute a festival for eight days. And they began a festival for eight days. Now, why did they do that? Here's the thing. The first of the year in Israel is Tishri. It corresponds with our September. At the end of Tishri, Tishri the 25th, you were to celebrate what's called the Feast of Booths. Have you ever heard of that? The Feast of Tabernacles. You've heard of that? But it really was nothing other than a camping trip to Jerusalem. They did this once a year in Jerusalem and they surrounded the Temple Mount. Now, two months before Kislev the 25th was Tishri the 25th, and they were supposed to celebrate that then. Could they? No way. The Syrians were still posted guard all around the city. There was no way they could celebrate that. But two months later, on Kislev the 25th, they could celebrate it because they had reconquered the Temple Mount. So they said, we're going to celebrate this. Everyone bring your stuff, gather around. We're going to have a week-long feast, no work. All we're going to do is restore worship in the temple, and we're going to celebrate. Now, why would they do that? If you know anything about the history of the Old Testament, you get to a place where you read about Solomon taking all the craftsmen, all the masons, and building the most extreme and elaborate temple of the Old Testament. It was called Solomon's Temple. When it was done after long, long months of, of work, and it, they finally had a time of dedication. And to dedicate the temple, they celebrated, catch this now, the Festival of Booths, the tent festival, the tent party. Judas Maccabeus shows up and says, you know what? It's time for us to celebrate. We missed the Festival of Booths two months ago. Let's set up a festival now and dedicate the temple. And they celebrated it with lamps. And they did that because they were working in the temple area. And historians say they lit the biggest vats of oil in the temple area to light this place up. It was a great celebration. And so they did call it, even in the first century, they called it the Festival of Lights. Now, here's an interesting observation as we go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and the life, and that life was the what? The light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, that through him all men might believe. Verse 8, he himself was not the light. That's John. He wasn't the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives life to every man was coming into the world. Christ was that light. Go forward three chapters, and you'll see in John chapter 3, Jesus out of his own mouth talking about this. You know the context. Nicodemus, got to be born again, that whole thing, talking to the Pharisee Nicodemus. He wraps it up with this. He says, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what has been done has been done through God. How about John chapter 8? Can't miss this one as Jesus presents himself on the Temple Mount at Hanukkah. It says in John 8 uh, verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, don't miss this one, underline it. He said, I am the light of the world. What a powerful statement. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. About me, light. Chapter 10. Here's what he says at the Feast of Lights, the Feast of Dedication at Hanukkah in winter, walking in Solomon's colonnade. He says in verse 24, as the Jews gathered around him, they said, let's start with that, how long will you keep us in suspense? They're a little irritated. If you are the Christ, what does Christ mean? 
Messiah, if you're the Messiah, if you're that great deliverer of the Old Testament that we're supposed to be looking for, tell us plainly. Do you think it's ironic that they're asking him about the deliverer on the day of the celebration of the great deliverer, Judas the Mallethead? Yeah, that's huge. And Jesus says this, verse 25, I did tell you chapter after chapter, sermon after sermon, I've made it clear. I told you, but you did not believe. The miracles that I do in my father's house, remember chapter nine, in my father's name rather, chapter nine, healing of the man born blind, which was the discussion that ensued at the beginning of chapter 10 as they tried to explain this thing. He said, the miracles I do in my father's name, they speak for me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep, underscore it, listen to my voice. I know them and they, what? They follow me. You know what Jesus is calling for? These folks on the Temple Mount, on Hanukkah, to look to Christ the Messiah, the great deliverer, and says, hey, I'm the guy. Believe me. Follow me. It's an amazing thing. Embrace the light of the world who lays down his life for the sheep. Great. That's great. Now what? Here's what Christmas is all about. Celebrating this fact that we as his sheep have heard his voice and we're following him. Look at verse number 28. Here's what he does for us. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. See, the great deliverer delivers you, and he delivers you with such certainty that right on the heels of that, he says, I just want to make this clear, it's a permanent deliverance. Look at this. No one can snatch them out of my hand. If I am the shepherd, you hear my voice, you choose to follow me, I've got you now, you're adopted in the flock, you're a part of my team, and you're not going anywhere, and if that isn't good enough for you, verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So picture two concentric fists here. You got the Messiah's fist, the great deliverer. He says, if you want to follow me, I got you. You're a part of my family. And you know what? If that isn't good enough for you, the hand of the father is wrapped around mine, and that's not, you're not going anywhere. You're part of my team. There's two things we long for, man, significance and security, and you got them both in one verse right here. I love you. You're my king. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to lay down my life for you. I will deliver you. And by the way, that ain't ever changing. Good days, bad days, hard seasons, not hard seasons, good months, bad months. I'm your shepherd. I'll, I'll take you through this thing to the end. Let us celebrate your deliverance. Celebrate the fact that the great deliverer, the light of the world, the good shepherd presented himself in the festival of lights and said, hey, you know what? I'll deliver you. All you got to do, hear my voice, follow me. God, we love you very much. For those of us that have heard your voice and are now committed to being a follower of the Good Shepherd, we celebrate Hanukkah today with a real sense of gratification that you not only deliver us temporally like Judas Maccabeus did, but you know what? You, uh, you deliver us ultimately from the power of death, the bondage of sin. That's worth celebrating here in this Christmas season. God, thank you that Christmas has made all that much more special because we understand something of the significance of Hanukkah. Thank you so much for all that we have to celebrate in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're listening to Focal Point with our special weekly segment called Ask Pastor Mike. To hear this message again or to share it with a friend, go to focalpointradio.org. As a Focal Point listener, we know you're able to track with us on some pretty heady material. You probably engage in debates and deep spiritual conversations at your workplace or in your neighborhood. If you could, you'd probably do the research yourself, but who's got the time? That's why we take these important questions and do the heavy lifting. The answers in these Ask Pastor Mike segments are painstakingly researched for you. Now, if you have a question, let us know when you visit focalpointradio.org. 
And when you invest in Focal Point with a special Christmas gift this month, you can be confident you're supporting a transformative ministry. Give today by calling 888-320-5885 or go to focalpointradio.org. We challenge you to make your December gift your most generous one yet. These daily programs are making a difference. Here's a letter we recently received from a listener in Idaho. Eric writes, The conviction that comes through the messages has caused me, over the past three years in particular, to take my faith in the Bible and, by extension, the Bible itself and God seriously. I have been in contact with the Moody Bible Seminary to start down the road of getting an official education in theology and preaching. For this, I would appreciate your prayers, both for the work required alongside raising my family, and that God will guide me through the financial cost of the endeavor. Thank you again for your ministry. And thank you, Pastor Mike, for being such a great inspiration for me to go down this path. You know, your generosity results in changed hearts, minds, and lives. And we're committed to invest in you as you invest in us. As a token of our gratitude for your support this month, we'll send you a helpful resource that makes understanding theology easy. It's a book titled, The Essential Scriptures. Ask about it when you call 888-320-5885. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, wishing you a restful weekend. We'll see you next time right here on Focal Point. This program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.